G'day beer lovers, I'm Pete Mitchum and thanks to our good friends at Bintani, this is a special edition of Beer is a Conversation. As part of the 2019 Northern Hemisphere Hop Harvest, Matt Kierkegaard and I hitched a ride with the crew from Bintani as they travelled to the US to make their final selections of hops from the autumn crops. Virgil Gamash Farms, more popularly known as VGF, is a leading hop grower in Toppenish in the Yakima Valley. The Gamash family began farming back in 1913 on what was then called the Sunshine Ranch. The first crops were wheat, corn, potatoes, apples, grapes and alfalfa. But when Prohibition ended in 1932, the family set straight to growing hops. But it wasn't really until the late 1990s when a chance discovery of some independently growing uh, hashtag wild hops were rescued from destruction um, and in the spirit of an old wireless radiola series, that hop grew up to become Amarillo. Darren Gamash is the current steward of the family farming legacy, and in this chat with Matt Kierkegaard and me, he shares the history of the farm and its buildings, as well as the ways in which the hop industry and the craft beer industry have flourished together over the last decade. We dive into the true story of the accidental discovery of that hop, which made the business famous, and discuss the growing relationship between farmers and brewers, which is helping to highlight the fact that beer is, at its core, an agricultural product. Bintani provides a wide and varied range of products to ensure that brewers can make the best beers for you to enjoy, and we thank them for helping us to bring you stories like this one as well. Enjoy the conversation. Darren Gamash, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're here on uh, Gamash Farms. It's uh, it's Albert Gamash Farms and Sons. Virgil. Well, that was my uh, uh, my great grandfather. Your great grandfather. It's, okay. it's, it's Virgil Gamash Farms, and we shorten it to VGF. VGF. Well, thank you very much for having us on this beautiful uh, afternoon. Um, it's warmed up a little bit now. Yes, it has. It's nice outside today. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about uh, VGF Farms. Um, we're picking up the people that are in the industry have been around for uh, quite a while. So uh, uh, Virgil Gamash Farms was started back in the day in 1913 by my great-great-grandfather, Albert, if, if I put enough greats there. Uh, at the time, it was known as Sunshine Ranch, and if you uh, snap a photo, there's a the original emblem on the uh, the hop drying building, the oast, uh, if you will, on the back, and it says Sunshine Ranch, Algamash and Sons. So, so we we moved here in 1913, and we immigrated from uh, we took a quick hop, immigrated from Moxie, and we uh, live. Then we came from Moxie. Prior to Moxie, we were in Minnesota, and that was in 1897, 1898-ish. And then from there, we were from uh, Quebec, Canada. Okay. But what brought the family here? Was it to grow hops? Uh, it was, I would say it was um, some very flash uh, advertising by uh, Edison or somebody of those kind, <laughs> you know, and because uh, Moxie just wasn't uh, a place to go, but, but they had like a whole bunch of potato advertising and farming and that kind of thing. And so we were enticed and we came down. I guess, in essence, the family followed uh, economic opportunity, really, is what it was. And has it always been growing hops, or there's a lot growing out here? Oh, my. Uh, for us, we, when we got off the immigrant train in Moxie, that was the first job they had. Uh, they, had uh, they picked hops for other people. And once they got a chance to actually buy some property, and this property, according to family legend, 
had hops growing on it, they immediately tore them out because they didn't want to deal with them evermore because they were tired. Anybody who's dealt <laughs> with, uh, with hops knows that they're scratchy and itchy and dusty and, and they're just not pleasant things at all. <laughs> So, um, so anyway, so that was a family history. And then we moved down here to the valley and we planted potatoes, uh, concords and, uh, barley and wheat and alfalfa and all that, those sorts of things, the regular things you'd find out here. And then we didn't get back into hops until 1932, which was at the end of, uh, beginning of the end of prohibition. And so this was kind of a precursor to uh, the breweries planning on coming off of, of prohibition in the, in the legislation, or legislature. And so we planted our first 7 to 10 acres, or no, it was first 15 acres that first year. And we picked all those by hand, sent them off to Moxie. And according to family legend again, uh, Albert was so excited about what was going to happen with the hops thing that he actually made a mistake and oversold that first um 15 acre block he sold it twice (laughs) (laughs) and it's like within a few weeks of each other so we had to admit we had to initially come out and then dig those back up and replant them and i think our initial uh planting was 32 acres even though it was only supposed to be 15 so so yeah so this building out behind me the oast was built the following year in 1933 and uh, it's honestly been in use every single year since then for hops. You, you've seen over that time, Prohibition, um, you, you've seen the growth of hops again or the, the sort of reintroduction uh, of hops into the area. Over the preceding 60, 70 years, you've seen many ups and downs in, in the area. And how long have you been working the farm yourself? Um, prior to graduating college, I graduated college in 97, so that's when I started working full-time officially as a career but prior to that I think I started in sixth grade okay and I worked yeah <laughs> we, we've heard know, stories right? about cheap labor in the US <laughs> yeah, but yeah I think that's taking it to another level I, I think it was more babysitting services really oh, they weren't yeah. setting up a chimney yeah. or anything like that to yeah. clean it or no no okay so yeah no I have images and memories of of planting uh, tets for the AB program uh, when we were putting the nursery, uh, training, uh, arching when we used to do those sorts of jobs. Uh, My first full-time summer job was here uh, driving a tractor, and I think that was in sixth grade. So, (laughs) yeah, so, yeah, it was fun. But 97, when you were leaving college, that would have been about the time that a lot of people were reducing acreage, people were selling up. Am oh, I right was, in that sort of it, history? It, it, you were, you're right on the, the beginning of that. Right. So in 97 was the year that there was a lot of, of industry turmoil because we were switching at, from a lower, cluster, a lower alpha cluster in Galena in terms of alpha content to these things we call supers or CTZs. So your Columbus, Zeus, and Tomahawk. And so that was... So people were putting in more acres of these, but what we didn't recognize as an industry was that we really should have been reducing the overall acreage, if that makes sense, yep. because we were producing that more twice, yeah, twice the amount of alpha per, per pound in, in some cases. And uh, beers were getting less bitter. Um, there was there was that too. So your total volume was going down. Your uh, competitive level between uh, the operations was going up, and you were really drawing on 
the uh, other um, facets of the operations, whether it was uh, fruit trees or wine grapes or juice grapes, to support the hop operations. Was there ever any thought to not follow the family into the hop business? Uh, for me, yeah, yeah. There was always there was always that um, that thought process in the back of my mind that, and, and I'm going to be a little bit vulgar here, hmm. but at some point in time, someone in my family had balls big enough to get into the hop industry. You need to have balls big enough to get out. And so I always kind of had that playbook or that message in my mind. And so during that course of, of our tenure, we did um, wine grapes, we did nursery stock, we would explore some other things. And we also um, explored craft because that was different than what we were traditionally used to. Our markets were defined by uh, Hallertau derivatives, Hallertau Middlefrew, Liberty, uh, Mount Hood, um, Fuggle derivatives like Willamette, and also your base um, uh, alpha varietals, Galena, Cluster, Zeus, Tomahawk, and Columbus. That was our world. Uh, doing something like a Cascade or Amarillo, for example, that was unheard of. Nobody did that. Did you get into the craft market? Because there's a terrific story around our Amarillo, but did you get into the craft market before um, you happened upon Amarillo? It was right at the same time. Um, I would actually argue that we, we started playing around with aroma varieties, and we had a soft spot for those in our, for our operation. Um, a lot of it's because they're more of a challenge to grow, and also um, they're just more pleasant. To, to I just had more of an appreciation for it. But we found Amarillo in 1989. So that was a long, long time ago. And from there, we, we established it. We brought it up an acre, two acres at a time, and then we gave it away. I, well, I was going to say, uh, when you say found Amarillo, it's not just we found Amarillo. You literally found Amarillo growing. We, we <laughs> literally found it in a field and it shouldn't have been there. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell us about that story. Well, I, I'm not quite sure if this is more of a commentary on how poorly we manage our crews <laughs> than anything else, but uh, uh, we routinely send our crews through to rogue off types out of the fields so that we can get rid of males. Uh, we can get rid of uh, any crosses that might be there we want a we're trying to sell a pure to type product and for whatever reason this plant evaded all of that i don't know if it had feet wings i don't know but but it did and at the time it was such, it, it overtook this hill and it was such a monster in terms of its growth habitat and it's something that we were only starting to see we heard rumors of we almost thought it looked like a super. So we're like, okay, well, let's just keep this thing around and see what it does. And so we did. We nurtured it through the season. And we got to the point where it was starting to get ripe. Or And I remember Dad and Mom were out there, and, and Dad put, picked a handful. And he's like, my God, I wish beer tasted and smelled like this. And that was kind of our our big cue of, okay, this is this could be something special. So, so what year was this? 89. Th th this was 89, so it was, so... Uh, I wasn't even through high school yet. 
<laughs> but uh, Sierra Nevada, for example, had started making the, the, the pale ale. So there, mm-hmm. there were beers that were starting to look for, not just for bitterness, but aroma-positive characters. They were trying to find things that were def- going to define their beer styles. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that was available to them, it was Cascade, it was Bullion, it was uh, it was Liberty. It, I mean, it was there wasn't a whole lot of things that were different. And then Amarillo comes on the scene. And it was completely different. It didn't smell like a Cascade. It had the same alpha levels as a Centennial. I mean, it was it was just unique. Do you, have you done any genetic research to, to work out what the parents of Amarillo were or what the, the accidental crossbreeding was? I've started into it, but I don't have any results yet. Not because we haven't wanted to know. It's just I've been so busy that I haven't pursued it. So as soon as I find out, I'll let you guys know because I think it's it would be interesting. But if I had to hazard a guess, I think it's probably a Cascade Cross. Okay. Do, do you ever, given just the serendipity of that and the the, the 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 luck and the you know that it hadn't been rogued out by the workers, that you decided to let it grow out and see what the fruit was? You, you told the story about how when your family first moved here, they rooted out every hot plant that was growing wild do you ever sort of think gee i wonder what they threw out no <laughs> best not thought about it maybe, not... maybe i should but yeah. I, yeah no i don't want to know <laughs> the funny thing is is that if you look around there's all sorts of interesting things you just have to be open to it uh, i uh, was thinking you've got uh, the amarillo which was as i say almost not there it was you know mm-hmm. just a, a small quantity but now we move to the present day, and it's not even just here in, in the, the Yakima Valley that you grow Amarillo. Where else is it coming from? Oh, so we, that's actually a great question. Uh, so we like to play with terroirs. We like to grow things in different locations and, and, the, and the, the challenge of that. So we now grow it in North Idaho, South Idaho, um, up and down the valley in, in Washington, in I would say West Valley, which is almost like downtown Yakima, there's a block up there that's that's pretty successful. Uh, Moxie, uh, Oregon, and then our biggest move was to uh, Germany, and we were growing it in the five growing regions there. So traditional Hallertau, Tetnang, Jura, Elbisale, which is right on the Polish border, and uh, Spalt. And what are you finding with, with the same hop? It's genetically the same plant, but you're growing it in these different areas. What are you finding um, is the difference between the various regions? It, it's been really fun to, to uh, see this. So we find every flavor profile that I'm finding in these other regions, these other terroirs, we've seen before in, in on our farm. It's just a question of what the weather pattern was on that specific locale, and and that's what's kind of driven the the, the flavor profile. Um, I get more I get more grapefruit in Washington and in South Idaho and in the Hallertau and and Elbisale uh, due to heat units. So when they have a Saharan heat wave that comes rolling through, we get more grapefruit notes and orange notes. Um, if it's a little bit softer, there's more floral and fruit notes, which is like what I see in North Idaho, which is about 10 degrees cooler on average than an average day here. Uh, so the soil differences uh, the coming soils, through at all, or is, are they just that hardy that they'll grow whatever, wherever? 
you know, hops are like weeds. <laughs> They'll grow. <laughs> because I just think we, we kind of think about terroir. So we think about volcanic soils or we think about sandy loams or rich composty soils affect the flavor of... It's, it's been my limited ex- experience, and, and granted this is very limited. It's been my limited experience that the weather patterns play more of a role than the actual soil types. And that can vary block within a block because the weather from year to year is going to be different even if the soil and everything's the same yes yes and it'll vary from mile to mile like in germany we have all these different farms that we're working with and they're in different valleys so the weather patterns that a guy will see that's a half mile over in a different valley will give him a completely different profile Um, the challenge has been trying to nuance all that together into one Amarillo brand and we've done that very well in the US. In Germany what I've done is I wanted to to create skews and and play with the different facets that we could tease out of the hop. Just just to elaborate on that a little bit more. So what have you been doing there? You've been selling the specific region rather than blending well not the region per se but the flavor profile so uh like if i get like a lemon candy from four or five different farms and they're not all in the same region i will pool that together and that will be a production run and i'll do that with the grapefruit or the floral or the um, fruit punch it's been much more exciting i've had much more dare i say artistic freedom to play with that region that I have in the U.S. Because in the U.S., we have have had a brand and a flavor profile that we've been nurturing since 97, in essence, right? And so people have an expectation of what they want out of that hop. And so it's taken us 25 years to get there. So my challenge in the U.S. is how do I make all these growing regions hit the established profile that people are looking for? In Europe, it was more well, let's see what we can tease out of this and provide uh, some nuances for those guys that we call that are in the long tail. And, and, and how are brewers responding to that? Because I guess on the farm you can do whatever you want, but it's how a brewer and then ultimately a cons- consumer react, responds to that. Well, it's been, it's been, very, uh, it's been very new. Um, last year was really the first time that I played and teased the nuances out. And so th- that volume is just now really starting to be played with by brewers. And the feedback that I'm getting is that uh, they're very excited about it and it's doing what they want, which is very gratifying because <laughs> sometimes you don't get it right, you know. <laughs> well, also, I guess to that, um, you know, legend has it that uh, it wasn't always the easy sell or, or it wasn't the, the popular, you know, brand hop that it is now and we look around in the um in the conference room here and we you know um amarillo hop registered trademark bottle the brightness you know we're, we're so i guess enamored with um and from an australian's point of view i was just saying to matt before in the car on the way over it, amarillo was probably one of the first after i realized that hops was one of the four flavors or, or four ingredients in beer uh, amarillo was probably the first time i could name a hop and it started appearing on neck tags with uh, i think with james squire uh, golden ale yes yes was one of the, the first ones so but but i'm guessing it hasn't always been that easy and as i say the well i th- i think that uh, the amarillo story is is characterized by luck and i would almost say blind ass luck <laughs> because we almost I, you were trying to throw it out <laughs> <laughs> we i'd like to say there was like this big master plan and we you know we knew what we were doing and all that but no i can't say that uh we just 
everything that we've done, we've just done in response to trying to take care of our clients. And I think that's really been the success of Amarillo and it's hopefully its legacy is just taking care of people. But you can have luck and then it's how you deal with the luck um, and how you manage that little bit of fortune that you've received. How did, uh, I believe it was your dad, um, how did he approach brewers and first get them to make beer um, out of it and and, and did they welcome it from from the beginning? Well, we've always worked with people and that's really the key. So when we started uh, introducing Amarillo to... to, uh, the, the craft market that wasn't us directly because we're dirt farmers we really don't know much about any of that and you could argue we still don't um, where we where we made the right decision in my opinion is that we worked with distribution houses that were that had customer service desks they they were trying to uh, create a market for for craft and trying to answer those problems uh, and that's how we did it. We gave it away, and uh, we let people run with it. That's how you do it. So in those early days, because now I think one of the, the most exciting things about um, even just on this trip, learning so much more about hops is getting out of that mindset that I want Amarillo or I want Centennial. It's I'm trying to make a tropical, you know, lifted hop aroma style, um, you know, maybe a Session Ale or a, a Pilsner or a, an, an IPA. And I can now, I'm now directed towards hops that will give me those flavours rather than brand names or, or varietals. So is that sort of how you see things continuing? I believe so, yes, because I think that nuancing out the different flavour pro- profiles are what, is what's really interesting. Um, and, and honestly, once you've established that, if you think about it from a broader perspective, um, like if I'm going to go to my, my friend Jason, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm looking for this flavor note because this is what makes my beer sing, then he'll have something that he's played with in his playbook that he's engineered that has better agronomics, you know, this and that, that, that really can make an entire brand, a flagship brand out of it. But I think initially you have to identify the flavor, and that's where you just have to kind of be open to things. Is there any coincidence between, I understand that quite apart from Amarillo, you discovered these this plant in the field with unusual characteristics and you commercialised it. I understand that Sriracha Ace was a hop that somebody else developed, but you were the person to first really see what could be done with this very unusual hop character. Yeah, that, uh, Sriracha Ace is a fun story. So I ran across Sriracha Ace and I believe it was in 2002 or 2004 somewhere in there uh it's kind of vague i can look it up but that, that makes for a boring story <laughs> somewhere right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so uh there was a so dr mori bred this back in hokkaido and he worked for sapporo and sapporo uh participated in a germplasm exchange with the usda and that happened i think like in the early 90s 1992 and so that germplasm came over to uh the the college in prosser and they have a germplasm repository for hops and so they have all these different sections in there from hops around the world whether it be from australia new zealand uh south africa uh, in this case japan uh so everywhere 
And I used to go there relatively routinely when I was younger, and I just used to walk the fields and just smelling hops just to see what I what I liked. And I was uh, doing one of these little outings with uh, uh, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Kenny, and he had his little notepad walking behind me. And I remember walking by this this vine, and it had these big, massive cones on it. And I just reached, I just grabbed it, and I was walking. And it literally, I smelled it, and it literally stopped me in my tracks because I had never smelled anything like that before in my life. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, this would make a great hefe or hefeweizen because I was brewing a little bit at the mm-hmm. time. And so I turned around and I asked him, I said, so, uh, Dr. Kenny, can you mark that hill because I want some roots for next year? But what is the name of that hop? What What is this? And he's looking through his maps, and he finds, he goes, oh, that's Sriracha Ace. And so that's how I was introduced to Sriracha. And so because I was interested in it, I then met um, uh, Sapporo's representative at the that January at the Hop Growers Convention. I sat next to him on the bus, and because of where we were with Amarillo and the trademark and the branding and the patenting of all that, we were pretty sensitive to those questions. And so I asked him, I said, I said, Hero, do you have any problem or can you find out if anybody at Sapporo has any problems if I grow and sell Sriracha Ace? And so he got back to me a, a week or two later. He goes, no, that won't be a problem at all. Everybody's fine with it. So I grew it that season. And then I took it to uh, some guild meetings there in, in Seattle. And that's where Dick Cantwell uh, and Doug Hyman was introduced to it for the first time. And then my buddy Doug uh, sent some off to Garrett Oliver, who then built that Sriracha Ace that, from Brooklyn yeah, Brooklyn Brewing. And then he took it to uh, Japan to uh, Hitachino Nest because he was doing a collaboration brew with... Um, uh, uh, Toshiyuki Kiyuchi and so that's how it got back over there and Toshiyuki was reintroduced to Sriracha Ace in Japan and now to kind of bring it all full circle Sapporo now has a brand that they call uh, Sriracha Ace 1981 or yeah I believe that's the name of it and so they're selling that now and it's got uh, Amarillo's being used underneath that brand as well and it's got pictures of the barn on it and there's this whole story and it's just really a kind of a fun success story well particularly i guess given that you know the, the whole corporate you know something the size of sapporo i guess you would sort of think no if that's ours then you know, you're not to have it or but they've in fact you know i guess given you their blessing um and then it's come full circle you've you've turned it into something and rather than them i guess want to take it back they're sharing in the the whole success of the story well yeah absolutely and i think that's just a characteristic of the beer business i mean you really think about it there's not a whole lot of people involved in it, and we all know each other. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it, like, it, it, it's funny that this plant had just been growing there, and you wonder what would have happened if you hadn't have pulled that one cone off and asked about it, um, because it doesn't sound like Sapporo had any plans for it or knew what to do with it at that stage. Um, and it, it, it's almost who gets the credit, the person who creates the rootstock or the person who goes, actually, this is something special that I can use. My opinion is, is that any time that you squash creativity, you've, you've taken away from, from the system. So I think promote creativity as much as you can, because you really don't know what angle or what 
what uh, you're not going to really you can't really dictate what how somebody else is going to view something if that makes sense. We talk a lot about uh, the economic contribution that brewing makes to to the economy and you know the jobs, but when you look at the the, the hops industry, craft brewing, in a lot of ways saved the the hop industry. It, it went, oh, absolutely. And and but then again, it's the top growers that have provided these really who have responded and picked up these really interesting flavors. And uh, you know, I, it seems like it's a really wonderful partnership between growers and brewers. And uh, you know, Galaxy is another hop that was created, and big brewers had passed on it, and they'd passed on it, passed on it until you know Stone and Wood really showcased, sort of thought this is something that we can do with the, with this hop. But then also there was a big order of galaxy hop i understand it that one of the large brewers had ordered and then decided that they didn't want it so it was just sitting around and that they were able to, to use something for it so it's it, it it sounds like we're going through a period that is based on serendipity or you know that that good fortune that, that you had with amarillo but the right people meeting at the right time and building industries and reviving you know a, a whole uh, part of the agriculture I feel that this is truly a golden age for for hops and craft, and we're lucky to live in it. How long can it go on? Well, that, that that's that, that's a bit of a curveball. <laughs> but uh, with, with a family that's been uh, growing hops for eighty years, you've seen a lot of ebbs and flows. And it's it, um, whenever we speak to hop growers, they always talk about the boom and bust cycle. You know, we are going through a, a definite boom. Well, I'd like to think that we've learned a few things in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And I think I'd like to think that we've picked out what kind of works and what doesn't work. And hopefully the cycles will last longer. <laughs> Speaking of learning, Darren, um, legend would also have it that perhaps you were the first to, I guess, break the mold and say, I'm going to harvest over four five or six weeks when everyone said, no, that can't be done. You shouldn't. That's not the way to do it. Well, yeah, talk, but talk I, us through I, that. When I was brewing, I was doing in my mind everything right. I was giving the same advice that I was giving to all of my uh, brewery clients, but I was having trouble pulling out a hop or flavor note that I was I really wanted for my pale ale. And so it's always been a it's always been a question for me. Well, I mustn't be I mustn't be harvesting these at the right time. I must there's I got to be measuring this wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And I just happened to be in the position where I was calling all of the fields for the farm for, you know, 15 years. And I just started looking for technology that could give me an aroma memory. And so we created this lab. I hired uh, an organic chemist, brought him on board, and we just started working uh, and, and working towards this, this process. And in the and within that framework, we were able to pick out the terroirs of when things were ripe. And so we just started playing the terroirs off against each other. So we started jumping around from block to block to block when they were ripe rather than following the historical training date pro- protocol where you start on May 1st with one field and, you, and that's the first one you pick and the last one you trained is the last one you pick. We actually started doing it based on the fingerprinting of the aroma. And that's how we were able to do it. We also had, were lucky in the sense that we had three, we were just targeting three aroma profiles, an early, a mid, and a late. And we had clients that wanted each one of those. And so we would redirect the pounds 
to the different warehouses distributors based on what their orders were based on their client base i guess for consumers who see an apple on a tree or a mango on a tree and see that it can sit there for a week um, before it's picked and it'll still be perfectly edible and they probably won't even notice a, a great change a lot happens in in the flavor development of a hop fruit um, over six seven eight days uh, at, at harvest time doesn't it uh, yeah, there, we what we look for is we look for a trend line of how fast that field's changing, and then once it starts getting close, we start seeing changes every two days. And, and what sort of changes take place? What what's the progression of hop flavor for Amarillo, for example? Uh, well, um, it's it's fairly complex, but very briefly, you'll see the um, the upregulation of some flavor components and you'll see the downregulation of others. And you'll see those ratios change and those ratios will change how that hop is perceived by us. And we also start seeing negative flavor notes um, being created. And it doesn't matter what the intensity is. It, once you start seeing that, and those are driven by stress in the plant, whether it's heat stress, uh, insect stress, water or fertilizer lack of um, those will all once you start seeing those flavor notes um, start to peak or come up then that field's ready you're not going to make it any better that's just the way it is that's the vintage with uh, hop growing being such, such a partnership with the, the, the brewers we've, we've seen beers like the the, the juicy and the hazy um, beers come along that are very much about hops so on this beer that you're tasting right now did you notice that peach and mm. that stone fruit note that just popped, that was what we were targeting. We classified this as our stone fruit um, flavor bucket, if you will, out of Europe. Yeah. I had to go back and read the can just to make sure that this wasn't a fruit-added version because yeah. it had such peach um, character coming yeah. through. But it's funny too because, again, my, um, I guess, um, experience with Amarillo, I'm automatically expecting kind of that more citrus peel mm. kind of thing. And then now I'm thinking, oh, I'm looking at grapefruit. And so I was expecting those notes. And then when peach came along, I thought, I oh, know, where's the grapefruit? And I almost overlooked the, the peach. So yeah. Same, guys, it's the same hop. You guys have no idea how happy I am because this is truly the culmination of a decade's worth of science work plus picking and putting these small little farms. And they're only like 5,000 pounds at a time, these small little farms from across the 600 acres that are in Europe, getting them together doing a production run and then now you're seeing this in the beer do you know how incredible that is we're not going to pass that on because dan dayton's got a big <laughs> enough head already having having just taken out champion beer at the uh the indies we won't we won't let him uh, hear that easy but w- w- with a style like this there's so much talk um that it's uh, a beer driven by Instagram culture, for example. It's, it's, it's a flash in the pan and it won't last. I guess from a hop grower's perspective, you'd be hoping that these sorts of uh, styles have a little bit of longevity to them. As far as the beer style or yeah. the hops? Uh, the, the, the beer style. I do think, I think they're going to last for a while. I mean, there's going to be an ebb and flow as people, as trends change. But once you've created something like this, it doesn't ever go away. Where do you think beer is going to go? Do, do you watch the market and sort of see what's going on in your local tap rooms when you when you call into the to the bar? I think I I had an experience here about f- four weeks ago. I was over in Europe and I was reviewing the the amarillos that were being that were being ready to be harvested, and I was at a luncheon, and I think people are going to, uh, and I think our craft guys are are 
uniquely positioned to tackle this. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more non-alcoholic beer created. And it was interesting to me because I was a half the table was buying NA beer and the other half the table was drinking normal beers and then they would switch. And it was just because of, you know, the rules and the things that they had to do later on in that day. Yep. Everybody liked the flavor of beer. They just needed to be cognizant of, of what they want to do the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the, the biggest change I feel is going to be occurring or the biggest new style that will be occurring in the next five, 10 years. It's interesting you said that because that's one of the things that I, I, I appreciate the desire for no alcohol beer because beer is in, inherently limiting because of the alcohol. Right. I just wasn't sure whether there was enough love of the flavors of beer minus the alcohol to, 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 to kick off that style. Um, and, and me personally, I love drinking beer, but I'd be lying if it wasn't just that little bit of, you know, sort of relaxation that comes from having uh, alcohol and beer that is a big part of it for me. And I'd probably drink water or coffee if, if, if I was not going to drink beer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you think that there's enough desire. And with beers like this where the flavours are so distinctive rather than mainstream lagers, which is where most of the alcohol development's been so far. I, I think there's a home for it. I also think if you're health conscious, if you look at a, a typical um, a mainstream non-alcoholic beer, it's 65 calories. Mm. That's less than a uh, can of soda. Mm. Tastes better than some water <laughs> in, some tr- <laughs> in certain cases. <laughs> That's very true. Well, uh, Darren Gamash, thank you very much for joining us for, for this conversation, and thank you very much for welcoming us to your farm, and all the very best for, well, I, I guess you've finished the, the, the harvest now. Uh, we have, and uh, uh, I think we're all a little bit jet-lagged or harvest-lagged because <laughs> we're, we're sad and happy it's over at the same time. So what happens now? You just uh, put your heels up for a month or so? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> we're, uh, we're actually planning what we're going to do next year, so, which I'm excited about. Well, actually, I was going to ask that. The, okay. Is it only next year that you're looking at, or is next year sort of already in the works and you're thinking two years three years ahead well it's, it's we're looking at next year what we're what we're doing we're modifying the plans that we made that were the forecast from a year or two years ago to kind of reflect what's occurring today so it's kind of a combination of all three you've got your short-term inputs and then you've got your kind of your longer-term uh directional uh points so wonderful well you guys are always welcome anytime you want to Come back and visit. We'll hold you to that. And apparently, there's a chance we'll, we could be back next year. So we'll get to uh, we'll follow up and see follow how, up and uh, see how it all went. How I'm realized tra- tracking this time next year. Darren, perfect. Uh, Darren Gamash, thank you very much for joining us on Bureau's Conversation. Thank you, guys. Don't forget, if you like what we do here at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You'll find details in the show notes. You can also review us on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcasting service happens to be. Let us know what you think and help others find and discover our shows. Finally, you can tell us what you think about what's going on in the beer industry by emailing us at producer at brewsnews.com.au. 